I'm sorry, Arizona. <laughs> You're going to be so upset with me. <laughs> there was a hiker who was hiking in Arizona. And okay, you guys, maybe he was not from Arizona. He couldn't have been from Arizona. So he's he's not your fault. But anyway, this guy he's who was hiking in Arizona was hiking on one of the very like snowy mountain peaks. And this fellow, I'll just say fellow, <laughs> he was hiking and he needed to be rescued. The weather wasn't what he expected. He was not expecting it to be quite so cold and the snow to be so deep and for it to be so windy. So he got rescued. Oh, geez. And then the very next day, he went hiking again. Stop. On a separate peak or a separate trail or whatever and injured himself and had to be rescued by helicopter again. What an idiot. <laughs> what a waste of resources. Right? That's a terrible thing to say. But really, don't be an idiot. That's not Arizona's fault. <laughs> In fact, I happen to know because my mother is a native Arizonan. Well, I mean, as we established last episode, she's technically Canadian, but she's been in Arizona since she was six years old. She would be like, well, you can't assume that there's not going to be snow. These mountains are really high. <laughs> I just want to know. I mean, <laughs> one of the rescuers was like, well, I admire his perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this fool, it is a sign from the universe. If you get stuck on a peak, you take it as a sign. You go back to the lodge. You have a hot toddy or whatever it is you're going to drink. And you cut your losses. You don't get back at it the next day. Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. I have to tell you what Matt surprised me with for my birthday. So on my birthday, he was like, we need a Sunday afternoon that you're free. Okay. And I was like, I don't have one of those. What are those? <laughs> weekend days free? What? I don't know what you're talking about. So this weekend, I technically had Saturday off. And I kept saying, but I have the whole day free on Saturday. Like, we can't do this mystery activity on Saturday. No, it really should be on a Sunday. Okay, whatever. So we agree that after my concert yesterday, I would just come straight home. And then we get ready and we go to this thing. And I have no idea what it is. But there was a lot of back and forth because the call times and stuff. And I was like, are you sure this needs to be on Sunday? And he's just insisting. And everyone at the gig yesterday, I was talking about it. And they were like, I'm so curious to know what this could possibly be that it like needs to be on a Sunday. <laughs> so I get home, get in the car, and the ETA is like 35 minutes away. And we're driving and I don't know where we're going. I love surprises, by the way, everybody. That's a thing with me. <laughs> I could have asked, but I didn't want to know. I wanted to be surprised. Yeah. So here we are driving out west. We get off this exit in Manassas. And about a mile later, we turn into the parking lot for a roller skating rink. Oh. <laughs> Is that not the most amazing thing ever? <laughs> it's very 1994. Yes! <laughs> I am embracing the return of all of the things that were popular when we were kids. Oh, my God. Okay. It was amazing. How'd you do? Um, <laughs> I wasn't terrible. And I also ice skated. And I ice skated a lot more. I actually took, like, figure skating lessons when I was little. Okay. But the roller skates are, like, 
heavy. <laughs> and the reason it was important to go on Sunday is because it was adult skate. Yeah. So they weren't kids like zooming around you, thank God, because that would have been terrifying. But <laughs> you have, like, I'll have to share videos. I took videos. Oh my gosh, I need to see these. I mean, everything about this was so amazing. We get there and all of the speed skating is on the outside ring. Mm-hmm. And then, like, all the noobs with the little bridge that, to help them stay up. <laughs> like the walker. The, the rolling walker. Yes. yes. If you don't want to be in the speed zone, you have to get to the middle, but you have to get yeah. through the speed zone. Sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> that was the most terrifying part, was getting to the middle the first time, because there's no break, and you're, <laughs> you're like, teetering on these things. <laughs> so we went out, we probably skated for about an hour, and then we had beer, and we watched people. And that was also just incredible. I mean, there are people out there like all ages from all different backgrounds, and they're really, really good at it. They dance while they're skating. They're doing fancy moves. Amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, maybe I did when I was a kid. Oh, my God. And the music was all 80s and 90s music. Oh, my God. (laughs) It was so incredible. And it was very neon and there were black lights everywhere. It was everything. (laughs) My best friend in middle school and I used to go (laughs) to the roller skating rink. We'd get get one of our parents to drop us off and we would go and we'd call each other before. Oh my God, what are you going to (laughs) wear? And there was a rough crowd sometimes at the roller skating rink. You know, just like middle schoolers and high schoolers who were like looking for trouble. (laughs) for trouble and (laughs) i remember wearing okay this is gonna date me extremely i was wearing overalls but only one of the sides was it was yes i did that too yes (laughs) so i was wearing that and like i don't know a tank top underneath it or something yep and my girlfriend and i were like you know skating around and and there was this other group of girls there and one of them was wearing a similar outfit to me. <laughs> oh, no. That was trouble. And we got into some kind of verbal altercation with them. Oh, my God. I don't even know what the, the context was. Like, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to fasten the side that's non-fastened? <laughs> Will that solve our problems? I don't know. You could have been like, you fasten the side. You? No, you. I was here first. I'm clearly who wore it better. It's me. <laughs> I mean, that goes without saying. Well, I got to show you some pictures from middle school sometime. Likewise. Oh, my God. (laughs) We should. Oh, God. We should find them and put them on our Instagram. Okay. If you do it, I'll do it. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. I love that girl. I do, too. I look back on those little girls and I love them. So let's do it. Let's give them their moment. Yeah. The roller skating rink shaped me for sure. (laughs) Amazing. By the end, I was outside of the beginner ring. And I was able to pick up speed. My legs decided they didn't want to do it anymore after a certain point, which happens to me in skiing. It just takes a lot longer for that point. But I can feel it. I know exactly because I start making stupid mistakes. So rather than fall, I was like, I think I'm done. I think I'm good. Going to take it easy. But it was fun. Like once I started picking up speed again, I was like, oh, yeah. I found myself thinking, I want to come back and get better at it and be able to do what these other people are doing. (laughs) Because it was so (laughs) impressive. (laughs) 
We should do a meetup in the area. That's what I was thinking. I would do it to be active. Yeah. Yeah, I would do it. Yeah. Let us know if if you're in the greater Northern Virginia area and you want to go roller skating with us. We could set up a, we could rent out the private room for a park. (laughs) That's really a throwback. Oh, good times. We'd need streamers and balloons and cake. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of happy things. I love it. Good segue. I did it. Did you like my segue? That was good. (laughs) That might have been my first one ever. (laughs) Yeah. Tanner. So we got to talk with Tanner Gus, who started his own podcast. And it's all about something that is near and dear to our hearts, something that we try and practice. And his podcast is called The Happy Musicians. Mm -hmm. And he is all about talking with people who appear to have figured it out on some level, how to do what we do and stay happy about it. And he's been going since 2019. Mm -hmm. And the insights that this guy has, he's really a rare find in this generation, I think, of musicians. So we were just thrilled to be able to spend some time with him. Yes, absolutely. So thoughtful. And there were things that struck me in the conversation. He talks about how this was the start of his career, really, was when he started to have these observations. We are coming from the perspective of having these observations 15 or more years later, starting our careers. <laughs> I won't say that you put the arrow <laughs> up from 15. <laughs> Just be at 15 with me. I'm going to join you at 15. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> but he made some observations about what the working conditions were like in terms of people's satisfaction on the job, literally, and has sort of created this documentary experience for himself and what it's like to be in this career. And starting out that way, wow. If that inspires musicians who are endeavoring in a freelance career to do the same, great. I think we as people who've been in it for a long time, we can learn a lot from this too. There's a lot of perspectives that just really make sense to me. And I want to say, even if it doesn't need said, I want to say it's never too late to start changing your perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's really good. And he's very, very well-spoken and thoughtful and really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed our time together with Tanner. Yeah. And I hope that you do too. So enjoy this conversation with Tanner Gus of The Happy Musicians. As you know by now, we are thrilled to be sponsored by The Artgrest. They're a small business based in Rochester, New York, and one that we are proud to support. Aaron and Tigran literally started the company in their home workshop and continue to manufacture each Artgrest by hand and mail them out personally to every customer. And because they're a small business, they're now able to offer a new option just for you, customization. Now you can get your new Arcrest base with a favorite color, a pattern, or even a photo to make it unique to you. Yes, imagine a family or pet photo, your favorite sports team's colors, or your orchestra's logo on your Arcrest. Head over to our Instagram for a photo of our own customized bases, and you can also visit thearcrest.com to see some more examples. Really, the possibilities are endless. And you can feel confident knowing that your purchase is supporting the actual people who designed and will be making your new shoulder pad with their own hands. Find their products at thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. We are all busy, especially those of us who teach music. 
We give everything to ensure our students' abilities and love of music are always growing and developing. We want to make sure each one has the right setup and instrument, but we barely have enough time to practice for ourselves sometimes. That's where Potter Violins can come in. Their sales team and technicians are also players and experts on all string things. You can send your students to try instruments, get properly sized, have their current instruments adjusted, or to pick out a new bow or other string accessory. You can have total confidence that they'll be taken care of. Potters will even ship what your students need anywhere in the United States. So take one thing off your plate and send your students over to Potter Violins, no matter what they need. And Potter Violins loves teachers so much, they want to offer you a 10% teacher's discount because you deserve it. Visit their flagship location in Tacoma Park, Maryland, their rental location in Gaithersburg, Maryland, or shop online from anywhere at potterviolins.com. Tanner Gus is a professional drummer based in one of my favorite places in the world, New Orleans, Louisiana. In addition to being a musician, he self-describes as an overzealous fan of The Office, coffee addict, and plant dad. Tanner is the host of the Happy Musicians podcast with a mission of building healthy, happy, and fulfilling careers by sharing mental health and wellness advice from artists who've managed to do just that. As you say, we practice our instruments every day. We also need to practice mental hygiene every day. And I just love this so much. So I feel like we're going to just jump right in and talk about that. But welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast, Tanner. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Yeah, Steph and Liz, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And I appreciate you reaching out because it's always fun to connect with other podcasters, minded folks here in the music community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You are our first podcaster on the Viola Centric Podcast, right, Steph? Mm -hmm. This is so exciting for us. So you allude to this right off the bat when you introduce the podcast on your materials that it's about practicing mental hygiene, practicing happiness. This is a thread that's very important to us here too. What made you start exploring that for yourself? Yeah, I went through the music school gauntlet Mm -hmm. and I think I actually made it out pretty (laughs) well intact compared to most people I know. Like I ended up having a really good experience and whatever music school's trauma you pick up mine seemed pretty minimal in comparison yep. which I'm really grateful for but I definitely saw the problems all around me and went through plenty of them myself but when I got to New Orleans and I left straight from school like within the week I was driving down to New Orleans and New Orleans is a really welcoming city which is awesome so I was able to start working pretty quickly and doing the thing that I had spent four years thinking about doing and preparing for. And then when I started doing it, it was just so discouraging to see how many people had been doing this for a long time and seemed utterly burnt out on it. Mm -hmm. And if the messaging that I got up until this point, which was very explicitly, how do you get the gig? That was the question everyone wanted to know. And that was what so much of the material was built around was like, here's how we give you the skills to work. And the whole point was just, uh, like, we're all terrified that there isn't enough work out there. So we're going to master our craft so that you can get the work, right? Yep. yep. And it turns out there's work out there. And people who have had that work and have had it for decades, if that was the whole thing, they should be incredibly happy, right? Because they were doing the thing every day mm-hmm. for years. Yep. And it turns out most of these people seemed very unhappy. And that was terrifying for me. Because mm. I'm like on this gig 40 years younger 
And I'm like, is that what my future is? Like, doing this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because uh, that's not why I started playing music. And that's not what I think it could be. And the silver lining was that there were musicians at every step of the journey who still seemed so excited about playing music. And there were variables with how much they were working or what kind of work they were doing or how lucrative their gigs were. So there was something else besides just the quality and quantity of, of work that seemed more important. Mm. And I think the conversation has shifted in the last few years as more people are talking about this. And it doesn't seem as gig obsessive, but there's still is a lot of work to be done. And that's where the whole basis of the show was. That It's not about getting the gig. It's about enjoying it. And there's a lot of things that have come from that. But I still think that that's the, the core concept. And then I should say that I didn't plan to just like, all right, I'm going to go solve this problem. <laughs> I did what most Gen Z kids would do, which is like, okay, who's making a podcast to solve this already? Because <laughs> <laughs> I assumed someone was doing something about it. And at the time, I couldn't really find anything. There just wasn't a voice in this space. There were certainly episodes and moments devoted to this conversation, but it was in a larger framework that I saw as being problematic, which was still about the main reason for doing this would be to get really good at your instrument or to get the gig, you know? Mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I just didn't agree with that. And what I was seeing in the world didn't line up with that. So I started a podcast because I wanted the answers. And that has remained true. I put out episode 66 today, actually. But it me asking questions because I don't <laughs> know what I'm doing. <laughs> and that has been really rewarding because it has kept me humble and in touch with that feeling of growth and like searching for answers. So the last thing I would say is that at first it was about this distinction between, okay, it's like there's these happy musicians and there's these miserable musicians. And if I just talk to the happy ones and hang out with them and emulate what they do, I'll be a happy musician one day. Yeah. And in hindsight, that's obviously a bit too black and white. So there's room for everyone to be a happy musician any day. And it's really more of an ideal than it is a distinction because I'm not the arbiter of happiness and it's not my job to decide who is and isn't happy. And also, hopefully, the result of my podcast and what I talk about isn't for people to stress about, am I happy or not? It's just to create space to find a little bit more ease and enjoyment in what you're doing. And it's certainly a daily opportunity and not like a one-time discovery. Absolutely. Yes. When you reference this idea that you were looking for the solution to a problem and there was no solution out there, right? There's no resource up to the point when you formed it in 2019, right? Mm -hmm. And now 66 conversations later, like you're putting that energy out there and creating that resource for people. We play music for a living. Theoretically, what could be a more joyful profession? Mm -hmm. But being a human being is very complicated and the structure as you alluded to which i imagine we'll get more into with the way we are trained now it's all about excellence excellence technical excellence and not much else that that's not looking at a whole human being is it <laughs> i just there's a lot you said that is so great i also love the point about it's not an end point to be a happy musician like it's not just one day you arrive and you've accomplished this goal that you set for yourself but it's like you said, an opportunity mm -hmm. every day for you to find that joy in what you're doing. And I just love that. I also feel like happiness 
by us just talking about it, it increases the opportunity for people to identify it in their everyday work mm -hmm. and just be like, oh, okay, this isn't all doom and gloom, but I'm going to keep my eyes and my ears open for these opportunities to be present and to experience the joy of making music. I love that. Yeah, just a reminder of why we're doing this. And maybe the main reason I feel like the podcast has resonated with people is that it is very honest to just about me, like getting people on who I see have solved something that I'm really struggling with. And it's very personal, like, hey, um, I am anxious all the time about this and you don't <laughs> seem to be like, please help me. And I have found that my anxieties seem to be somewhat universal in the music community, or at least a lot of people feel them. So even though it's from a personal perspective, it seems to be more or less things that we're all experiencing as we try to do this. How has it positively or any other way impacted your work as a freelancer? Well, I'm thinking about this two ways. I've had a ton of incredible insights from the conversation that I have been able to implement in my life. And I do think that my stress levels in regards to music are way lower. You know, there are other things in my life that continue to struggle with. And maybe that's because I don't have a podcast about them. <laughs> <laughs> but my relationship with music does seem to be in the best place it's ever been, which is really exciting. And one thing that I really like doing, like clinics at schools and things, is just creating a space for people to talk about these things. Because mm -hmm. when I first started this, my family joked that it was like, are you charging people for this? Because this just feels like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but I have also found over and over again that the guest finds it very therapeutic as well. Mm -hmm. Have an opportunity to be seen and heard and express these frustrations and their experiences. And I do brand this as a mental health podcast because I think it is. It's informal and I consider it a mental health podcast because it's just creating a space for people to have those conversations. And I do think that because I'm a practicing professional musician and I went through music school and I've been in these situations where these negative mindsets are just fostered so easily, I'm able to have a really informed opinion on it. Whereas if I was just a mental health professional looking in on the music community, like something's going on there. <laughs> I don't think I could have very constructive conversations because I'd be pulling and guessing at strings. Mm, totally. That takeaway has been huge. But the other way I interpreted your question, which is something I have been thinking about, is like, how is my perception in the community as the person who does this as, like, quote unquote, the happy musician is kind of a weird thing sometimes. And just like, I am 24 and still in the very early stages of my career and trying to talk about these massive systemic problems in the music community. And I didn't want to do this. There just wasn't anyone else doing it. And I've certainly had a lot of imposter syndrome about that and continue to have to remind myself, well, no one else was doing this and you decided to do this and you're good at this and you're doing this for a reason. But there's always that voice there of like, who are, like, who are you to be doing this? <laughs> and doing these podcast crossovers is really the times that I actually find myself speaking and answering questions, which is fun because it formulates my thing. But I do think it has elevated my position in the community because I am actually creating something. And that is often missed. A lot of people are just waiting for opportunities, not out of laziness, but out of we weren't really taught to create something. We were taught that if you get really good at your instrument, the magic merit machine will reward you. Magic merit machine. That is genius. <laughs>
I think the the meritocracy idea is actually really damaging. Totally. Because it's way more about being the best at your instrument, because that's completely subjective and depends on the situation and the room you're in and what music you're playing and who you're playing it with. Oftentimes, we're just kind of waiting. But when you start actually creating something that's so exciting, and that's really what we all want to do is to make something with these skills that we have. Mm -hmm. And so making the podcast has, I think, given me a certain position in the community as shaker and a mover, maybe. I think the more content you have out there, too, no matter how many people are listening, and I really feel like this for us as well, is that it doesn't matter when that single person stumbles on your podcast that hasn't known about you before. Now there's all of these conversations mm -hmm. for them to listen to and have them resonate and just elevate a consciousness in a way that, that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. And so I really think it's in that building of the body of work as well that ends up having these sort of long-term cumulative effects and someone has to put the message out there. Somebody has to frame it in that way. And Yeah, maybe I, I feel like in some senses, mine's almost like a documentary. Yeah. Because it literally coincided with the start of my career out of school almost exactly. So it's very active, figuring out lessons and sharing them in real time. So that is kind of exciting. It's a glimpse of my career building and evolving. Mm -hmm. It shows in your podcast too. I was listening to the one with Monica Shriver, the brave musician, mm -hmm. and just how you were very candid about how you have evolved as a person and a musician since graduating from college. And so I'm curious about what is your evolution in the world of happiness been since like the beginning of the pandemic? Because that's when a lot of us were thrust into this, okay, the brakes are put on without our consent on our careers. And we were all forced to kind of examine things, which is how this journey started for Liz and I. What is happiness? What are we doing here? How can we take control over our careers since pre-pandemic and now, how has your journey changed you as it relates to happiness? Yeah, uh, the pandemic was rough. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I don't know if I could say I handled it better than anyone else because like of the lessons I had learned on the podcast. Mm -hmm. It was weird because my conversations just based on my experience were about the grueling aspects of music school and then the working gigging musician, like nine to five type blue collar gigging musician thing, both of which more or less disappeared when the pandemic hit. So mm. I do think a lot of the content wasn't really structured around that. When the pandemic hit, I honestly took a big break because it was just like, what am I talking about? Probably for those reasons, because the specific topics that I had been exploring just didn't exist anymore. Mm. And again, at this point, I was 22 and not really like I wasn't ready to soldier on through global pandemic. And then on top of that, I know I had a lot of depression from, you know, suddenly being unemployed. Mm -hmm. I moved back in with my family in Salt Lake City, which went terribly. A lot of things caught up with me during that period. Mm -hmm. And I think I eventually came out of it with a new perspective on the podcast and a doubling down on like, this can't just be about living within the frameworks that are there right now and doing your best. This has to be more personal and about your personal relationship with the instrument and with the sound, regardless of what the global structure of what a music career might look like. And I think that's why, especially lately, I've been really into conversations with people who have built 
bands or projects are unique situations where they're playing music on their own terms. Yeah. And maybe the other big takeaway from the pandemic is that it, it finally got me to start seeing a therapist, which has been really big for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Thank goodness for therapy. <laughs> it should be the same thing as, I don't know, at some phase in everyone's life. You have to take care of your physical health. You mentioned this, Tanner, multiple times too. should be taking care of your mental health as well. And it is incredible the shift that can occur in any aspect. But yeah, I think you're really on to something referencing for yourself too, that the podcast is something you created. And the trend may be heading in that direction for people who are musicians, doesn't matter what your discipline is. I feel like, at least in classical music training, we're sort of funneled into as you, what did you call it? We're, we're trademarking it for you. Uh, the magic merit machine. The magic merit machine. Classical music especially. I'm sure other disciplines to some extent, but in classical music, oh yeah, it's the magic merit machine. We have so many musicians out there now, highly qualified musicians who are trained in this way and simply not enough of those jobs to be handed. Yeah. That creating our own opportunities is really gotta be where it's at for any age. Mm. Yeah, I think the classical musicians I knew in school were more neurotic than the jazz musicians <laughs> because there were more of them, they had fewer opportunities, and they were pigeonholed into very specific options. Mm. Whereas we had more options kind of put before us. Yeah, I do think that a lot of problems come down to this idea, which is that, yes, these specific career gigs there are fewer and fewer of them and people in them are staying longer. And if, you know, everyone was just waiting for an orchestra gig, like clearly not going to work is what there's like four bassoon gigs that open every year or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. Everyone knows that, but we're still all doing it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but the thing that I don't think gets said is those few people who get the gig, did they like it? Did it actually solve anything for them? Did they suddenly mm. settle and they were like, okay, ding, ding, ding. we're good now. Like, I got the gig. Yep. And so far, every time I talk to people, it's like, oh, yeah, no. I had basically trained myself to never be satisfied with where I'm at. And not in a good way of like, oh, I keep trying, but in a way of just completely self-destructive. You can't give yourself credit for where you're at. And also, you can't just enjoy the situation that you're in. And I think part of that is the training that we get to like, just critique ourselves and assume that we're supposed to be somewhere else instead of right here. Mm. And also that just because the orchestra gig is the sustainable option and you can build your whole life around getting to the point where you're rewarded by the magic merit machine to get that gig, maybe you wouldn't enjoy it just because you didn't really want that gig. Like you didn't want that. There was this other thing that you always knew in the back of your head would be amazing and you'd love to do it, but you didn't do it for any number of reasons. And so I think a lot of conversations that are going on in critiques of the music world, we're trying to figure out where the whole economy of music is heading, going into Web3 and all that. And mm -hmm. we're trying to get musical entrepreneurship skills into the music world. And we're talking about mental health. And I do think that when I see these people who are really happy, most of them figured out the thing or things, and it's usually more than one thing that they really love about music. And they built a career around that instead of where's an opportunity, okay, let me push myself into that mold. And for me, that's what entrepreneurship means. How do you build something you're excited about? And sometimes it just feels really bland. Entrepreneurship is like emailing clubs or something. That's part of it. But that's, 
I think it's really this idea that you could build your dream gig. You could do it. You could build it with your best friends. <laughs> and it could be the thing that sustains you and you could build a career around it. Like you really can because plenty of people are doing it. And you don't just have to play whatever the stock options are for you. Like for me, it would be like jazz standards gigs, background music at restaurants, which I still do plenty of. Uh, and that's partially because I haven't really found the band and and really figured out for myself, like what it is in the musical thing that I want to do. And that's why this phase of the podcast is really focused on that idea because I'm really searching for that. But I think that would be the answer to a ton of questions. And I think music schools would really be serving musicians if they made it very clear from day one of like, what do you love? What do you want to do? And how can we help you do it? As opposed to, all right, let's see which one of you wins the gladiator fight <laughs> to get the orchestra gig. Yeah. Yeah. Gladiator fight. It's 100% what it is. I love it. It's very... It's so true. I have lots of imagery in my mind right now. <laughs> like, what does the gladiator arena look like? And There are all these classroom musicians who don't have work, who are unbelievably well equipped to do that work right and just need the opportunity and i'm like i don't understand how i'm not seeing just get like 40 of you together and go do some performance in the park and see what happens yeah that would be big if you just started doing impromptu giant orchestra performances in random places that would be huge uh-huh almost like flash mobs that would be awesome yeah basically but obviously that would take someone to coordinate it and you're not going to get paid to go do this, but something could come from it. Mm -hmm. But I think like if you love that music and you want to play it more, just go start playing it. Yeah. It's such an interesting point. And I, I'm going to bring something up that maybe is, I don't know, something we can pull on a little bit. I'm sitting here thinking, why don't we do that as classical musicians, particularly orchestral musicians? Why don't we do that? So I'm wondering if, the first thought that came to my mind at my age with my level of experience is that there may be a slight feeling of entitlement almost like rather than take the authority ourselves to go and put something together and do the work to do it. We want to get paid to go play on a stage and have a director direct us and play like the quote unquote legit gigs and we want to jump from zero to 60. And it's that concept of winning auditions or just saying yes to all the opportunities that are given to us because somehow that puts us on this path. I don't know that entitlement is the right word, but Steph, do you know what I'm getting at? Well, I mean, you feel like you've put in your time and that you've worked up to a certain level. You've graduated from music school, that you are on some level entitled to be given work. But I think that's really changing. Yeah. I do really think that's changing. Like people are like, okay, well, I do have to do a little bit more on my end to differentiate myself, to create a new path for myself. And I know that's where you and I have been. But I want to go back to something, Tannery, that you said about what if in music school, it was more focused on what do you love? What do you see yourself doing? What if instead of spreading out all of your efforts to doing a lot of things, if you concentrated all your effort on one thing, letting the rest go, which is a scary thing for us freelancers to do, because we've been trained to take everything that's offered to us. And the big work for freelancers, once you've gotten past that time of say yes to every gig, even if it doesn't really pay very well, because you're trying to build your reputation, like you alluded to, Tanner, 
is figuring out what to let go and what to focus your efforts on so that that can really go far and that can go to its full potential. Maybe to try to combine those two, I think the way that I experience music here in New Orleans is as a social phenomenon and as a service to people. And that quickly negates any feeling of entitlement Mm. because it's no longer about this person sitting quietly and being in awe of what you're doing. It's about, do I get this person out of their chair? Yes. Shaking their ass, you know, like, can I do that in a drum solo, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. That was a quick game changer from I'm in a recital hall, especially because I'm playing the Black American music that I play comes from that tradition right? Mm -hmm. and not necessarily from like an art sit and study audience type of tradition. But I think the essential part of music is bringing people together. Yeah, connection. And your connection with people. Mm -hmm. And being a musician is more for me about being a part of the musician community. This Friday, I'm playing at the Pontchartrain Hotel, the Bayou Bar, which is by my money, like best straight ahead jazz gig in the city and my favorite place to be. And it's so special to me to get invited to play that gig because I will be playing after like several of my drumming heroes mm. play earlier in the week you know it, it's a four night a week gig mm-hmm. and it's wild to see me on the same like facebook post about that <laughs> cool truthfully i've probably been to that gig 50 times just to listen i've put myself in that room over and over again because i really care about the space and the musicians involved and the music they're playing for no other reason like then that's how i want to spend my time is in that space with those people mm. and i feel like in the classical world if you were to go to the symphony for every show for like 30 years and you were also a practicing musician yourself and you really longed to be there one day and like you were given that gig because of how invested you were in the program mm people would be up in arms. They were given special privileges. They're not the best. Their audition wasn't even good. Mm. That's just the perception that I get that people would be so mad that you were given an opportunity for a reason that isn't how good you are at your instrument. Yeah, yeah. But the whole reason for me, like you would want to be in that orchestra is because you love the people in the orchestra and you love the music that you were playing. And the space felt like this magical portal to you, to this world that you just want to be in all the time. If that makes sense. A hundred percent. It makes total sense. It just has me thinking about this idea from the start that Stephanie brought us back to that you mentioned about getting us thinking about what it actually is that we love about being a musician. It doesn't matter what the discipline is. Mm -hmm. There is no way that when I entered college for music performance that I could have answered that question. Right. Or if somebody said, what do you want to do with your music? What do you as an individual want to do with your music? I would have been like, (laughs) I want to play an orchestra because I love orchestra. That's all I ever want to do. Period. No thought behind why. And I just love that we're really getting at the values that we hold in music and what it is for each individual person is going to have some different combination Mm -hmm. of things that light them up about doing it for a living. We're all different people and that's so true. But to your point, to be mindful, to recognize all the elements and connection really being at the root of all of it and what it feels like to connect not only to your peers on stage, but to where you are and to who you're playing for. And that feeling that is all part of the experience and valuing each of those things as much as we value the gift from the magic merit machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to tie that into the entitlement thing, because I think that's really true. Because you do get very skilled at your instrument in music school, and you can leave with this piece of paper that Uh 
okay, can I just show up to the gig and hand this to the band leader and be like, yeah, I'm ready when you need me. But that's not how it works. Like in my world, it's like, all right, call a tune. Let's see what you got mm -hmm. kind of thing. Paper doesn't matter anymore. Like, mm. Let's play. Mm -hmm. I had a guest who said something really powerful and I think about it a lot. He said that going to music school, it's your ticket to the dance is what he called it. But it doesn't mean you've really started dancing yet. Mm. I really consider music as a social service. What you're learning in the practice room is just how to connect with your instrument and make something special. But the reason that's important to you isn't the reason that people come to the show. And I do think it's a myth and destructive to think of each of us as a musician as just this virtuoso, mm. this wild display of technicality is the thing that will get people to hire a babysitter and come to your show and spend their night, you know, listening to your music. It might be that way for some people, but most of the people that that works for are the musicians who get off on the cool things that you can do on your instrument, because that is exciting. And there are spaces for musicians to enjoy exploring music together. But the thing that I think we're all getting at is like, how do we use music to connect with our community? Because there's something special in this sound that we want to share with people. And this opportunity to do that in an orchestra or something is amazing. But that should really, in my mind, be a factor of how invested in the community you are. And you don't have to be in an orchestra to do that. And you could right now find a way to do that. You could host a backyard concert and invite all your friends and family and not at a recital, but just in a real intimate way. How can I share this thing I care about with the people that I care about? I know it's not on my resume, but the concert that I think about the most often was a private trio concert I did for my grandma. Aww. It was just my parents, my brother, and my grandma. That was the concert. And that was way more fun than any of the things that I put on my resume to look impressive. And I think it was more meaningful. And there are a lot of ways this can look like, but instead of chasing being a viral sensation or creating some global product or whatever, it's like, how can I actually help people in my community connect with sound in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we circle this very concept a lot, but I feel like that's the most succinct way we've heard you put it where you're not going to get people in the door based on how virtuosic you can play the instrument. Maybe the most elite, Yo-Yo Ma. Or... But Yo-Yo Ma's been doing it for decades, and he has a reputation and a connection with an audience, you know? It's like trust. Exactly. Like he started by really being somebody that people felt connected to in performance. It's so true. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just such a good way to put it. Yeah, because the work that you've done in the practice room is really just, it's for you, but that's not an impact that has built any kind of connection with people outside of the practice room. Mm -hmm. If you do want to think about this as a meritocracy, then part of that input value has to be how much time you've really spent investing in your listeners and enriching their lives. And the front end work you do to just be able to create those experiences on your instrument is vital and important and beautiful and uplifting to connect with your instrument in that way. But that's for you. And that's a means to an end. And the end goal is creating a musical experience for people. Mm. And that's the thing that I think actually makes me excited. And so most of my work now is thinking about, okay, what am I trying to say with these skills that I've honed? All my musician friends I know, I'm just waiting for them to be famous. They're all amazing. <laughs> and I know so many people who are just killer at their instrument. And all it would take would be finding the thing that they really want to say and sharing that with the community. And I think that could be the thing that becomes a huge impact on the world. But we aren't told to do that. And we aren't shown how to do that. And we aren't told that we're allowed to do that. <laughs> it's like you have to wait for some 
arbitrary moment where you're suddenly good enough to say what you want to say. But really what might make you sound your best is saying the things that you want to say in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that you're constantly discovering. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think if you asked me when I graduated from college, what do you want to be doing? It's like asking a five-year-old, what do you want to do when you grow up, <laughs> right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like, I want to be a ballet dancer, I want to be a firefighter or what, which are completely legitimate. But you ask that same person later on in their life and things have changed and things will continue to change. And it's something you have to keep yourself open to rediscovering and reevaluating what your goal is and, you know, mm -hmm. what you plan to do with it. Definitely. And when I say doing what you're excited about, that's going to change over and over again because it's entirely unrealistic to think that you'll just do one thing and that one thing will then be your musical mark on the world and sustain you for forever. Yeah. One, that's not a creative practice. <laughs> that's just like a, a one creative statement. And that's not really the essence of enjoying the journey or being a musician in the sense of like, this is a, a daily way that you connect with sound. But I feel like all of us have that tugging at the back of our head where we have an idea. Mm. Yes. And we're like, that would be cool, but I'm not good enough at whatever, so I got to go practice. And you don't do the thing that you thought would be cool. Mm -hmm. And everyone just has so many of those. Like, I think the reason <laughs> musicians are stressed are just these unfinished ideas and voice memos. <laughs> we could just all turn those into things and share them with the world. We'd all probably feel a lot better. <laughs> yes. So for me, like right now, I've been wanting to make a record with my college friends. And I've been wanting to make like an emo indie rock record. And I finally just called my friend and I was like, what are you doing in August? I'm going to be an indie what if I spend an extra week and we just convince all our friends to come and we make a record? Love it. And I think it's just like a one project at a time. But when you're excited about something, follow it and chase that muse and just make it happen because it doesn't have to be a world-class production with Carnegie endowment funding at a grand opera hall. Mm. It might be you get all the houseplants and lamps from inside your parents' house and you put them in the backyard and you mm. put on an awesome mm -hmm. concert for people you care about. And that you could do in a week. Yeah. And then you would have momentum to try something else. And not only that, but you would have a growing connection with the people listening to you that you create meaningful experiences with music. And to other musicians, that's like, oh, you're someone who makes things happen. So we want to be around you and involved in those things. And we want to invite you to be a part of things. It grows, but you got to start somewhere. And it's so rewarding to actually do the thing because we spend so much time about how do we do this? And we don't get very many opportunities to do it. And I feel like especially in the classical world, because there's just fewer established ones and there just seems to be less permission to do your own thing mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so have you been noticing in your conversations a shift in academia at all for that yeah but i still think it's more just about like these general business fundamentals right and i don't think that's what's important i think it's that you've got to be making something and that doesn't have to be alone it can be with a group and might even be better with a group if i were running a program and i had people learn rep and do a concert and then they had nothing to share on social media or to share with their families or anything like that that's just bizarre to me i don't know how you can just leave all of this music in the practice room it just seems like a huge wasted opportunity like people will spend two years preparing for a recital and never do anything with that music. <laughs> it's true mm -hmm. yeah that is the norm and the way that it's perceived as like that only mattered for that one concert. Yep. Mm -hmm. And maybe what you have is like a blurry 
single video shot from the back of the room. That should be a record. Yeah. Like, like your school should give you the tools to professionally record that and you should leave with your first record because you spent two years on that. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great point. Like I, <laughs> if I ran a program, if we were learning a specific style of music, you're doing bebop music, then in that course, you would have to like write your own bebop song and then record it mm. and then share it. And you would have to have a YouTube channel and a social media account you care about this supposedly, you know, okay, let's share it. You could do it a lot of ways, but for me, it would be like, okay, prove this is meaningful. <laughs> Make something meaningful out of it. Yeah. Make a tune and, and share it with the world as opposed to like, you're just learning this knowledge. Someday it'll turn into work. Mm, that's so great. <laughs> like how many pieces did you learn in your degree that you never recorded and never shared with anyone? Oh, like 90% of them. Like how many pieces do you think? Yeah, so many. Oh, gosh. I mean, from the moment we started playing rap, it's got to be, oh, it's got to be at least 100 that you learn and you don't do anything with. That's like 10 albums. <laughs> Could have been a recording artist all this time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're getting people more comfortable with putting themselves out there. Mm -hmm. And everybody is learning to have their own expression. And sometimes that's going to result in something that's not so successful, or it could be something that's really well received. Those seem like great ideas. And it's pushing that quest for creativity as well, which as you said, it's true, it's inside every single one of us. But there's so many excuses to hesitate on going in those directions. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's easy, right? It's very uncomfortable to put yourself out there, especially when you've been taught you're not good enough to do that yet. Mm hmm. And then that is an, a self-fulfilling prophecy. As you get better at music, you realize that there's more nuance to it. So you continually get better. If you're waiting to be good enough to post stuff, I don't think you're going to get to that level. So you just have to start posting stuff. It's not easy. It will be uncomfortable. But it's worth it because the reason you did this was to connect with people through sound, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, let's start doing that more. All of the experience you've had with the podcast, what you've been learning as you've gone along to circle it all back and reference this idea of practicing mental hygiene. What sort of practices have you put in place that work well for you in your own quest to enjoy the gig? If you go to my blog, I have these lists that I like to make. In essence, it's a gratitude practice. And a lot of my Instagram posts are just me thinking about what I like about the music world. Mm. So devoting time to just wholesome thinking is really fun. Maybe my initial challenge would be for everyone to write down 20 things they like about themselves, which shouldn't be hard, mm -hmm. but it is. And then it's kind of alarming to you where it's like, I can't come up with 20 things. Yeah. But do it and see how well you do. And then 20 things about playing music you really love. Devoting time to positive things. I started doing this new video series called Happy Happenings in the Music World. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. And that's kind of my way of like, okay, I know the music industry is absurd right now and a lot needs to be changed. But there are good things happening, so let's talk about them. Mm -hmm. And finding things that are good to focus on is very uplifting. And also just because it's true that they're out there and we don't see them because yes. like car accidents, negative things get picked up in the algorithm more than other stuff. So we're kind of in just a negative news cycle because it's more engaging. Mm. And so you have to seek out the positive. I also, again, will just give a shout out to therapy because that's been helpful to have an impartial third party to tell me if I'm being <laughs> ridiculous or not. And recently running's been a huge deal. Oh. The times I get darkest are when I go a few weeks without emailing anyone new for the podcast and then I don't have new episodes and then I haven't really worked on it. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm not engaged with the process of creating it. And then I spiral downwards into this cycle of like, why am I even doing this? I'm terrible. Like, <laughs> yes. But then as soon as I start doing it again and I do a new interview, oh, this is, yeah, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah. Trying to stay connected to the process of doing the thing is really helpful. Oh. And then maybe a couple other just general perspective changes that have been really helpful have been to view music, for instance, like the tuning of your drums or a certain texture or a type of filler, all these different things, not as good or bad. So instead of sitting there the whole time of, of like, this is a good decision, this is a bad decision, these are musical decisions, you know, or like, that's a bad sound, that's a good sound, that just gets exhausting to categorize. Yeah. And so to have a non-judgmental taking in the sound and accepting it as it is hmm. makes it way easier to connect with music in general because you're connecting with all of it, not just the stuff that you've decided is good. Mm. And it, it's much less painful that way. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. That resonates very deeply. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> that's fantastic. I also have a practice of gratitude I try to do every day. And it's so simple. It's really a simple thing that doesn't take me very long in the morning. But when I get really busy or overwhelmed, it tends to fall by the wayside. And I notice my mood changes. <laughs> it's hard some days. Some days it doesn't work because <laughs> we're human. Mm -hmm. But I think that all of your points about our tendency toward the negative, that's wired in our brains even. So to just put these things in place and even just down to the specific Mm -hmm. element of sound. I don't know, stuff. I was doing a lot of full body nod, even though you couldn't see me. <laughs> yeah, no, I love all of this. It's just about finding what works for you. Yeah. Because not everything that's on your list, Tanner, is going to work for everybody else. Right. I found myself connecting really deeply to the exercise bit, because I know that if I am not active in some way during the day, I start to go down that spiral of, mm -hmm. you know, just bad thoughts, doubts, all those things that you mentioned. So it's like a menu. Yeah. And you're not going to love everything on the menu. Yeah. But you're going to find your favorites that you go to time and time again. Mm-hmm. Maybe to just tie it all together with one more point that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it has to do with that same, just like non-judgmental acceptance of sound. Mm -hmm. But especially when you're at a point with music where you're just exploring the technical possibilities and maybe you're convinced that more technically proficient is better or more hip <laughs> is better or more complex is better for any reason. Mm -hmm. One thing that is powerful, and it, this is something you just have to keep returning to, it's not like you just do it once and you, you keep going, but it would be to pick the simplest thing that you can possibly do. So for me, it would be like the, the jazz ride cymbal, just playing quarter notes on the ride cymbal and falling in love with that sound. Mm ears immersed in it and hearing all the nuances and just giving myself permission that if I just did this, that would be enough. Mm. And that's beautiful. So then when you play more, it's because you wanted to. And that's also enough. I think you can start to do some reprogramming where you're not thinking about all this stuff you're not playing, you're just really in love with the thing that you are playing. Yes. There's a lot of dedication to sort of allowing something to be what it is, where it is, when it is in that moment, instead of that focus on the next better thing, which was something you alluded to earlier, and to take it to that very, very basic level like that. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Thanks for talking with us today, Tanner. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciated the opportunity, and I'm happy to have you all in the, the podcasting community. It's really nice to meet 
both of you and I appreciate the work you're doing. Yes, likewise. Thank you so much. We appreciate you sort of paving the way for this type of content. I'll use that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Experience. <laughs> Listening experience. In a good way. <laughs> if we can just splice in some mindless audio of me practicing, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll share it far and wide. This is a practicing yeah. podcast, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsors, Arkrest and Potter Violins. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. The viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo, and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.